0: July sixteenth, 2014. Rebecca Chaiklin contacts us about doing a Big Cat version of Blackfish. Hi, Carol. A phone call from a lady named Rebecca Chaiklin, a feature film producer. She's doing a feature documentary on the wildlife trade and is interested in coming out to Big Cat Rescue to film and interview you. And then it gives her contact information. The call came in on July the sixteenth at eleven thirty a.m. said Diana Rao, and that was sent from her iPhone. And then my notes, because I looked up to see who Rebecca Chicklin was, said Fisher Stevens, the Cove movie, real TV films, coverage of the Cat Kramer screaming of films that changed the world at Bronson Studios in Hollywood, distributed by Tube Mogul, and then I give the URL. Academy Award producer The Cove and actor Fisher Stevens and producer-director Rebecca Chaklin are in Berlin Film Festival after Sundance to to present their new documentary Another World. Rebecca was both director and producer on The Party's Over: Last Party 2000, a feature documentary on the 2000 presidential election starring Phil, Philip Seymour Hoffman which premiered at the Locarno Film Festival in Europe and South by Southwest in the U.S. and was released theatrically in over 30 cities around the U.S. as well as both theatrical and television broadcasts throughout Europe. Rebecca is the producer on Poster Boy, an independent feature which premiered at the 2004 Tribeca and Locarno Film Festivals. Rebecca was the producer on Men Make Women Crazy Theory, a Zoe Casavetes Directorial debut, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and broadcast on Showtime, although it was spelled different than the Showtime that I know, so I'm not sure if it was the Showtime. Rebecca was the Rebecca was the producer on Hardball, a feature documentary on the first series of baseball games between the Cuban national team and the MLB. The Baltimore Orioles produced by Barry Levinson and Tom Fontana. Chaklin was the producer on Midnight in Cuba, a feature documentary chronicling the hopes and dreams of Cuba's younger generation which premiered at the Berlin International Film Festival. Currently Chakelin is finishing The King of Soho as both director and producer, a documentary film featuring Michael Pompa, an older Italian-American who lives in New York City and has not traveled outside of a eight square blocks in over 54 years. Chaiklin is also directing a film on the war on drugs and hip-hop impresario Russell Simone's campaign to reform the Rockefeller drug laws. Rebecca asked for photos of me, which ultimately led to a scrapbook about my mom in December of 2018. So this scrapbook work that I did was in 2018, but I put it here. I moved it back and set it into the diary at this entry because this is um, what had prompted me to even start looking for photos was dealing with Rebecca Chaiklin and her asking for photos and then me asking my mom for the photo albums and then going through and building an entire photo album book like this for my mom and one for my dad. And I still have a bunch that I'm working on that I haven't finished. I also had in here the Senate Subcommittee on Environmental and Public Works Subcommittee on Water and Wildlife and this was proponent testimony in support of Senate Bill 1381 Big Cat Public Safety Act by me Carol Baskin, dated July 16th of 2014. Let's see if I can open this up and read it. The text is kind of small. Dear, Chamber, Dear Chairman Boxer, Ranking Member Vitter, and members of the committee, Thank you for the opportunity to submit testimony on this vitally important legislation. My name is Carol Baskin. I am the founder and CEO of Big Cat Rescue, a sanctuary for big cats in Tampa, Florida. On behalf of the exotic feline residents of Big Cat Rescue and their more than 200,000 supporters worldwide, I am presenting this testimony in favor of Senate Bill 1381. This bill would put an end to the federal government wasting millions of dollars trying to do something that is both financially and operationally impossible, i.e. to ensure the humane treatment of thousands of big cats inappropriately kept in backyards and used for entertainment. It would end forcing these majestic animals to live in deplorable conditions. My first contact with exotic cats came about In the early 1980s when I was in the office of a veterinarian who had done surgery on a wild bobcat who had a broken rear leg. The surgery only took a few hours but the cat needed several weeks of care while the leg healed before it could be released into the wild. I volunteered to provide that care and became what we call a rehabber. I got my first young bobcat that I actually owned and planned to keep captive in 1992 at an animal auction. I outbid a taxidermist sitting next to me who told me he was going to buy the cat, club it to death in the parking lot, and turn it into a den ornament. A year later, my then-husband and I bought 56 bobcats and lynx from a fur farm to keep them from being turned into fur coats. At that time, I thought that they could make good pets and began placing them in homes. In those early years, I believed the lie told by breeders and exhibitors that breeding big cats in captivity did something for conservation. In those early years, Big Cat Rescue did a limited amount of breeding of various species under that misconception. A few years later, the bobcats I placed as pets started being returned when they reached adulthood and became unmanageable. I realized that they did not make good pets. I also realized that captive breeding did nothing to promote conservation. In fact, captive breeding hurts conservation in the wild. So during the 90s, I went from being a breeder who placed cats as pets and occasionally took them off property as entertainment to become an advocate of stopping the nightmare that private ownership creates for these amazing animals that deserve so much better. Big Cat Rescue is the largest sanctuary for big cats that is accredited by the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries. Big Cat Rescue is held out by the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries as a model of operating and financial efficacy. And has been asked to hold seminars and private visits to teach other sanctuaries how to replicate its its success. We provide a permanent home to about 100 cats, 100 big cats. Charity Navigator, the dominant charity rating agency, consistently gives Big Cat Rescue its highest four-star rating. Cats typically come to Big Cat Rescue from two sources. Some come after being discarded by exhibitors who exploit them for profit. Many others come from private owners who abandon the cats once once they are no longer cute kittens, sometimes years later as their family situation changes. Others are confiscated by law enforcement because they are kept in horrible conditions. Under the current law, USDA is charged with setting a minimum standards for how the big cats that are exhibited are to be treated and kept. USDA rules only apply to those owners who show their cats to the public, or in many cases claim to show their cats to the public, in order to obtain a license to evade state prohibitions. USDA rules do not apply to the estimated thousands of cats whose owners simply keep the animals in their backyard. Those fall under state laws that range from no regulation at all to very complete prohibitions on owning big cats many of the states that prohibit ownership unfortunately exempt those who hold a USDA license. This has become a huge loophole. An audit of USDA licensees by the Office of Management Budget Management and Budget found that of those who owned four or less big cats 70 percent were really pet owners who only had a USDA exhibitor's license to evade the state prohibition. The point I want to make today is that USDA is try- the point I want to make today is that USDA trying to regulate how these animals are kept sounds good in theory, but is simply impossible from a cost and operational standpoint. This is not for a lack of trying. I have met, significant number, I have met a significant number of USDA staff over the years. By and large, they are highly qualified people, often with veterinary degrees, who care about animals and want to do right by them. In the off-the-record conversation, they frequently express the same frustration we feel at their inability to enforce the Animal Welfare Act mandate of providing humane existence for these animals. I know of some who finally quit in frustration because they could not stand to continue to helplessly see animals living in miserable conditions. I speak to you as someone who has lived this issue daily in the trenches for over 20 years During that time, Big Cat Rescue has taken in hundreds of animals from heartbreaking conditions, but even more heartbreaking is the thousands of big cats that, despite the regulations, suffer inhumane treatment and do not end up spending at least the latter parts of their lives in a good sanctuary. To explain why this is the case, I am going to give you a detailed, practical understanding of what happens in the field when USDA tries to regulate and illustrate with a few examples. Successfully regulating humane conditions and treatment is impossible because the number of inspectors. When I last counted there were almost 350 licensees who had tigers and the last report I saw had close to 700 who had big cats. But the same inspectors who monitor big cat facilities are also charged with inspecting pet stores dog, cat, and other pet breeders, and dealers, farms, slaughterhouses, laboratories, and other animal-related businesses. As of 2011, there are only 105 inspectors charged with monitoring 7,976 such facilities. It is financially impossible to have enough inspectors to inspect all of these facilities regularly. What inspectors can see when they inspect? USDA does not do undercover operations like Fish and Wildlife Service sometimes does. Even if they did, they could not possibly afford to do enough to make a difference. The USDA inspector typically comes to the facility without any advance notice and announces that they are here, that they are there. If the facility refuses to let them in, the exhibitor refuses if the facility refuses to let them in, the exhibitor receives a citation for not letting the inspector in, and the inspector has to come back another time. There is no fine for this citation. An individual who worked for one particularly notorious exhibitor told us that the staff was all told that if a USDA inspector came, they were to delay the inspector as much as possible. The owner would get on the radio and tell the keepers to make sure the water bowls all had water and stop doing anything that could be a violation like exhibiting a tiger cub so young that its immune system was not developed or a cub so big that it was dangerous once the inspector is taken around the facility what can they see they can see if the condition of the cages complies with the rules they can see if the cage has shade and water They can see if an animal is clearly underfed or has some obvious condition like a wound. They can see if the food preparation area is clean. They can check the census that the exhibitor is supposed to keep to attempt to see if all of the animals are accounted for. But this census is basically an honor system among people who lack honor. If the exhibitor breeds tiger cubs and wants to sell them illegally or not account for them if they die he simply does not put them on the census. Two of the most prolific tiger cub breeders keep the cubs in their residences where the inspector does not go. What the inspector will not see is if an animal is being mistreated because no one at the facility is going to do that in front of them. At a stationary zoo facility the inspector can at least find the animals. Monitoring traveling exhibits is far more difficult. Those that travel interstate end up in the territories of different inspectors who do not know that they're coming. Many of the exhibits are on the weekends. Generally, they are not inspected unless there is a report of a potential violation, and often the traveling show is gone before the inspector can respond, particularly if the display is on a weekend, because they don't work on the weekends. Because Big Cat Rescue is well known nationally for exposing those who abuse big cats, employees and volunteers from some of these facilities sometimes contact us with reports. In some cases, they are willing to file a complaint with the USDA. In other cases, they will not because they are afraid of the exhibitor or because they are concerned that they will not be hired by another animal facility if it becomes known that they had filed a complaint. One of the most troubling examples is the treatment of tiger cubs, bred incessantly around the country, to be used to make money by allowing the public to pet them, take photos with them, or swim with them. To start with, they are taken from their mothers almost immediately after birth, so that they bond to people and not the mother. This is a torment to both the mother and infant. If you have ever watched domestic kittens, what do they do? First, they sleep a lot. They need it. When awake, you see them pouncing on each other, biting at each other, hitting each other, or grabbing onto each other with their claws. These play behaviors are how they learn to use their muscles and skills that instinctively they need to build if they were going to live in the wild. Tiger cubs are no different. They want to do these natural behaviors and do not want to sit still to be held for photos. So they are physically punished when they attempt their natural behaviors. They are punched and slapped in the face kicked, hit with sticks and whips and have their faces shoved into the dirt according to undercover video and employee and volunteer reports. We have a video of cubs being kept on display with raging diarrhea and used for petting when they are suffering from ringworm, which is highly contagious and easily transmitted to humans. We even have reports of the cubs being thrown into the air to see if they will bounce. They do not land on their feet. When on exhibit, they are deprived of the sleep they naturally need. If a customer is willing to pay, you can be sure that the cubs are going to be petted or awakened to be held for a photo. We have video of one cub being held under the front legs and waved around to show a crowd. Cub was so exhausted that even though being held in this uncomfortable manner and waved around, it did not awaken. In the video, one young girl in the crowd said tellingly, Oh my God, I thought it was dead. What happens if the inspector does find violations? If an inspector does find one or more violations they issue a citation. Typically some time frame for curing the deficiency is given. The inspector may or may not make it back in that time frame. If the licensee has not fixed the problem a repeat citation may be given. If the infraction is not fixed by the next visit after that another repeat citation may be given. If the infraction has been cured, the inspector may find a different violation. Where does this all lead? What we see over and over is horrible places cited year after year after year while they continue to operate in the same way and cats continue to suffer. What happens after years of serious citations? In addition to inspectors, USDA has investigators and attorneys, but of course they are a limited number takes a lot of time to build a record that will hold up in court. So, only a handful of the worst, the worst exhibitors, is subjected to USDA bringing them to the administrative court to be punished with fines, suspension, or revocation of their license to exhibit. Actually bringing a case to trial is of course a huge time commitment for the limited legal staff, so they have a huge incentive to settle cases. One example is an exhibitor who racked up 197 violations, many serious, like failure to provide veterinary care over a four-year period. USDA finally filed penal- USDA finally filed for penalties and 2 years later settled for $25,000 in a 2-week suspension. The exhibitor bragged that he has made almost that much in one weekend of his cub petting exhibit. Another example, was cited in testimony that helped Ohio pass one of the strongest state prohibitions against owning big cats after the infamous Zanesville Massacre. Lorenza Person ran a facility called l l Exotics in the Akron area for decades. Although a pet tiger killed his two-year-old child in 1983, over the next 20 years he was allowed to acquire 82 dangerous wild animals. Although the USDA recorded multiple violations in housing, fencing, and animal care, including the removal of 27 lions and tigers in 2004 and a fire that killed several animals in 2005, it did not take away Pearson's license until 2007. After he had racked up a staggering 953 violations of the Animal Welfare Act, At a minimum after years of citations and finally being charged by USDA the licensee can still delay for years in litigation. What happens if a license is revoked? Very very few licenses are revoked. If the license is revoked the licensee can keep their animals in the same conditions that USDA cited them for as long as they do not exhibit to the public. They are no longer inspected by USDA because they are not a licensee. If they continue to exhibit in violation of the Animal Welfare Act, USDA generally must rely on other agencies to enforce the violation. This does not always happen. We took in two lions and two tigers from a former licensee named Diana McCourt in Ohio. The cats were not only declawed, but three of the four of them were defanged to make them safer. McCourt would chain the animals down and charge people to come take photos with these adult cats and get a certificate saying that they were a tiger or lion tamer. After numerous injuries to visitors over a period of years, McCourt finally had her license taken away. But she continued to operate as an exhibitor illegally for three years after that without a license because no one chose to enforce her her open violation of the law. She only stopped when she was evicted from the property for not paying rent for years. She left and abandoned the cats. The local dog catcher then took control and sent them to us. But there is another more common way for a licensee who loses their license to continue to operate legally if their license is revoked. They just have someone else get a license. That was the case in our most recent rescue on May 27th of this year. We took in three tigers from J&K's Call of the Wild in Sinclairville, New York. Ken and Jackie Wisniewski started the facility in 1997. When they lost their exhibitor license after years of citations, they simply had their daughter Christy Wisniewski obtain a license. To obtain a license requires a one-page application and a $10 application fee. They continued to operate under Christy's license and received more USDA citations under this new license. Meanwhile, conditions at the zoo deteriorated, and the animals were living in cages that were increasingly ramshackle and grossly underfed and losing weight. The cages were not being cleaned, so the cats were living in their own feces. Only after Christy had a falling out with her mother and refused to renew the license were the animals sent to new homes. But not by USDA. New York law bans private ownership of these animals, but it has a huge loophole. I mentioned earlier exempts those who hold a USDA exhibitor license. Once Christie declined to renew her USDA license, J&K was in violation of New York's prohibition against possession of such animals. After the Sainesville incident brought national awareness about what can happen, New York's attorney general became more aggressive about enforcing this law. Zeus, a 17-year-old male tiger who was born at J&K, pictured below, arrived at Big Cat Rescue, over 200 pounds underweight, with his hip bone showing prominently through his ragged coat. I remind you that USDA inspected this facility for years, issuing citation after citation. Was the regulation effective in providing Zeus a humane existence? Obviously not! And he is one of the lucky ones, He may at least get three or four years of his life in a humane setting after the years of suffering. If Christie had not had an argument with her mother and refused to renew her license, Zeus would still be starving and living in his own feces. Sanctuaries, a ticking time bomb. When these animals are seized or abandoned many go to sanctuaries Big Cat Rescue has followed a different financial strategy than other sanctuaries. We view the financial we view the future financial costs of caring for the animals to the cats to the end of their lives, the same way a company views the pension liability to its retired employees. Companies fund, or at least fund in a significant part, that pension liability. The only difference is, our retirees are big cats. In 2003, we made a decision to keep the number of cats at the sanctuary stable, only taking in new cats as our existing ones pass away, so that we could build financial reserves to fund that future liability. We have done that successfully. I know of no other sanctuary that has done that. Most have spent whatever revenue comes in taking taking in more and more cats, steadily increasing ongoing operational costs of the facility and have not set aside reserves to ensure that they can meet the commitment to the care for the cats to the end of their lives. There are now a number of facilities that have over 100 big cats and others between 50 and 100. In a number of cases they are run by aging founders who work seven days a week, have no succession plan, and have little or no financial reserves to sustain them through a transition. When the wild animal orphanage in Texas went bankrupt in 2010, there were 76 big cats among the 400 animals there. It took over a year and a massive effort by USDA, International Fund for Animal Welfare, the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, and others to place these animals. Many ended up at some of the facilities I just described, Further straining their resources. In the recent financial crisis it was recognized that allowing the biggest banks to fail would be a disaster. I believe we are on the verge of a big cat version of the financial crisis. The difference is we do not have a big cat federal reserve. Whether it is the next large big cat facility to fail that breaks the system or the one after that I do not know, but I believe it is inevitable that we will get to a point where a large facility fails and there is simply no place for the animals to go. If we do not pass Senate Bill 1381 by continuing to allow the rampant private breeding and possession of big cats, the federal government will end up responsible for massive euthanasia of these big cats to the horror of the American public, or face the enormous cost of footing the bill to provide for all of these cats for the rest of their lives. Conclusion. Regulations could be made stronger. We could double the USDA staff and it would simply be fingers in the dike. For the detailed reasons stated above, regulation simply does not work. The evidence is clear. We have spent millions of dollars each year for decades inspecting and trying to enforce rules that most big cats still live in conditions the vast majority of Americans view as inhumane. At a time when our nation struggles with deficits and country after country around the world and state after state in this country pass laws that recognize that it is inhumane and unsafe to have these apex predators in private hands It makes no sense for our federal government to spend millions of dollars each year inspecting tigers, living in backyards, and playing whack-a-mole, ineffectively chasing only the worst of the worst exhibitors. This bill would put a stop to all but a limited amount of breeding and ownership. As the current population of big cats in private hands dies out over the next decade or so, It would save the taxpayers millions of wasted dollars while ending the misery in which most of these animals live. Thank you for allowing me to testify. I urge you to vote to end the suffering and wasteful spending by passing this bill. And if you couldn't tell, my beloved Howard Baskin helped immensely with the writing of this letter. We make such a good team together because I... I have the passion, I have the anger boiling inside me that the government has been so incompetent and so lax in doing anything to protect these animals in captivity which is causing their extinction in the wild and yet Howard is able to take that passion and turn it into something that's not as offensive and gets the point across far far better than I can. That makes us a great team.